Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hey, Gordo. After some technical difficulties, hey. we are finally ready to go. Well, because we're using a new platform. Yeah. We switched everything over to Substack, and so it's an exciting new day. Substack, we're using, using all the new things. Yeah, trying some new tech and hopefully makes things easier for us in the future, perhaps. But we did some troubleshooting. Yeah. Now we're sounding good. Everything's going well. And we have a very special guest. Lexi is back with us. Lexi Henning. Yes, Lexi Henning. Yeah. And hi, Lexi. You can introduce yourself or say hello again. <laughs> well, let's do that. Let's just do that now. <laughs> For sure. Hi, I'm Lexi Henning. I basically majored in classics, so not an Egyptologist, but I also just finished a master's in Southeast European studies, which sounds gorgeous and vague, but essentially I wrote my thesis on modern day interpretations of iconoclasm, and I did a case study on Hagia Sophia. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And when I think about the ancient world, I think about Egypt uh, and a lot of other places, but I thought it would be a fun crossover topic. And yeah. you're now working at the Port of Food Center at UCLA, so you're now local to us, so that's exciting. And you're doing a podcast with them and stuff too so you're busy busy but today as you said busy, busy. we're going to be talking about iconoclasm and first as always we have to start with definitions and see if we can muddy these things up um, if we think the definitions apply so i went to dictionary.com as always and looked up iconoclasm and it is defined as the action of attacking or assertively rejecting cherished beliefs and institutions, or established values and practices, or the rejection or destruction of religious images as heretical, and also the doctrine of iconoclasm, the ones doing the iconoclasm. Do you agree with this definition? Um, should we broaden it? Well, I, and I just like to throw in some etymologies yes, because that's me. And I've got here in the online etymology dictionary, that it's a breaker or destroyer of images, 1590s from French iconoclast and directly from medieval Latin iconoclastes, from late Greek iconoclastes from icon, genitive iconos, image, plus clastes, breaker. And, and so you have a breaker of, of images, very simply put. Yeah. Does it have to be yeah, images yeah, that's... only now? No, it doesn't. And that's what a lot of my research was about. And you can define images in a lot of different ways. So uh, let me just preface this with, so in, in my thesis, in my introduction, I want to just set the base for like the definitions that I used. And so it basically, yes. So the strict definition is the destruction of images for religious or political okay. reasons. So I was going to bring that up too. Does and, it have to only be religious? Can it also be, because obviously we know that religion doesn't just stay in its religious wheelhouse, right? It spans into economics, politics, society, all these other things, too. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, before I wrote this thing, I probably would have said, yeah, it's only got to be theological. Because in doing this research, I found most, like the majority of the research done um, on this topic, they, they go by the traditional approaches to the study and understanding of it, which basically have been just like the theological roots of it. 
because it plays such a role in all three basically of the Abrahamic religions that are like the majority of the world at this point. But it's interesting because one thing I did learn a little tidbit was that Islam was actually the only one in which iconography is actually considered yes. idolatrous. Which I was like, whoa, dude, that's really like amazing. Um, which brings the modern for... Hagia Sophia stuff up more because they have covered which up does. a lot of the icons, the more human depictions, right, in the church. More recently, I think I've seen that in the news. Yeah, so basically I picked up my master's in Greece. And so it was really funny because I originally wanted to focus on something Greek. Um, but then I had a contemporary Turkey class and we talked a lot about domestic politics and I got super into it, but I still wanted to connect it back. And I've always loved the topic of iconoclasm. Um, and I studied Byzantine iconoclasm in undergrad a little bit. And so I thought doing a case study in Hagia Sophia would be really fun because as we were talking about this sort of domestic situation in Turkey, I realized that like a lot of what's going on there revolves around this age old battle that President Erdogan is waging in his country where he's trying to slowly erase the political changes by his predecessor, President Ataturk, who is the president of modern Turkey. And essentially, it goes back to the usage of Hagia Sophia and kind of traced its lineage back from when it was first built. I traced it back from the first church, the second iteration, and then the third one, which is the one that we see now, which is built by Emperor Justinian. And so well, can I stop you right there, Lexi, and just ask, tell our audience, our Egyptologically interested audience, what Hagia Sophia is. Maybe give us some Hagia Sophia is the other way you can pronounce it. So just a bit of introduction. Sure. So Hagia Sophia or the Hagia Sophia, it was basically built as a church. Well, there's three iterations, as I was saying, but we're going to go with the most famous one. So the background of it basically is that it was a church built by Emperor Justinian during the Byzantine period because it was supposed to be like the grandest church of the Orthodox world. And this was going to be the religious heart of the Eastern Roman Empire. And so this for Greek people, right, is the center of their religious life, essentially. Um, and Hagia and Sophia so or Hagia Sophia just means Saint Sophia, right? So it's the yes, church and it's of just Saint Sophia. Sophia. But it's dedicated to wisdom, not necessarily an actual saint, which is very mm -hmm. abstract and cool. But it's like oh, so cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's more like translated to like holy wisdom at this point for a lot of people. And... Yeah, it was basically built as like the, the greatest triumphal achievement for Orthodox people. But really, at that point, it just meant for like Greek people. And it was used in this manner for like hundreds of years, basically. But it has also become like a hotly contested political site because when the Ottomans started to rise in power, right, they turned all their eyes on conquering Constantinople, which was by then the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, and so they've held out for a, a good long while. And they, they it's interesting when you look at the history, they the Ottomans might never have conquered it. You know, like two things went a little differently. But essentially, in 1453, the Ottomans led by Sultan Mehmet II came in and conquered the city. And then he converted this church, which for, you know, like a thousand years, whatever, had been like the pinnacle of religious life for the Orthodox religion. Uh, they converted it into a mosque like that day, essentially that night. And then they had prayer services in it the night it was conquered. Um, and then it remained an active mosque until President Ataturk converted it back during the foundation of modern Turkey. 
So this would have been in the 18, oh God, I haven't looked at the books in a very long time. So 18 something, I will remember it. I will remember it, but not at this very moment. It'll come back to me in like two seconds. Um, but essentially, yeah. So then it was converted back into a museum when uh, Atatürk wanted to have Turk develop beyond and join the sort of the West. It was a push to be recognized where he implemented a lot of social, religious and other changes, he sort of banned re- religion from public life and essentially wanted to westernize his country. So in short, um, we're talking about museum. a great, big, important church. In the modern-day city of Istanbul, which used to be called Constantinople, look up the song that is really the centerpiece of our discussion of iconoclasm, though trust me, I'm going to throw in some Egyptian shit because that's the way I roll, but it's gone back and... Well, we will, but it's it goes back and forth between these claims, and this church is filled with all kinds of iconography, images, painting, zaics that have been plastered over, and then re... They, they, they show them again, the plaster is removed, and then they're plastered over. And it's just, it's like this fight, this battle between images that is so very interesting. Um, and some people consider certain images evil, and they, the other ones are good. And it's just this whole cosmic battle between these different Abrahamic religions of Christianity and Islam in this particular space. And so I also want to throw into this messy definition when I was looking through theories of iconoclasm and things like this, that there's, as Lexi also pointed out, like political iconoclasm and that it doesn't necessarily have to be solely religious. Oh, in Islam, we don't do icons, so we have to cover them up type of thing. Or I think you see with early Christian stuff in Egypt, for example, like them carving out the gods or putting crosses everywhere, trying to, you know, Christianize um, temples or eradicate non-Christian imagery. Um, but there's also political iconoclasm, which more takes the form of, I think people would know it like Demnatio Memoriae or erasing individuals from the record that they don't want to associate with or want to try to erase the memory of or things like this. Um, so I think that's important too, especially within the ancient context where we don't have these strict kind of church versus state like separations that we have more in modern contexts, that all this was very messy. For my work on reuse, this is super interesting, of course, because reuse, while it's a generalized catch-all term that an object or a building or a space that's been claimed and used can be reused, and very often there's an iconoclastic element or an element of Domnesia Memoria, but not always. Sometimes it's just a very practical reuse, but differentiating those things is very, very interesting. And before I get into the ancient stuff, I do want to maybe just to get our audience more comfortable with these ideas of iconoclasm and stuff if we can maybe postulate some more modern ones we can think of just to give some examples before we get into lexi i mean obviously feel free to bring up any classical examples too that you maybe are more familiar with but kara i have a modern one i got a modern one right now the rose garden Mm -hmm. that melania trump ripped out of the white house garden Mm -hmm. because it was planted there by jackie kennedy and so that had to be removed and it was a big moment when that was taken out and transferred into a different political garden. I think too all the Confederate statues that are now being dealt with in in the states. Absolutely. Pulling those down, whether or not we should pull them down or contextualize them in a way trying are we not engaging with that history. We shouldn't have statues celebrating these people, obviously, but we shouldn't also forget what happened. And so dealing with or Christopher Columbus statues and stuff, there's all these reckonings that are going on, like who we should have statues to and who we shouldn't and what we should do with these statues. I think 
would be a more modern day equivalency? Yeah, there's a I mean, there's a lot. Right. And then it depends on what you want to tie it to, because this is such a broad theme. So you can talk about the erasure Mm -hmm. of a person. Right. So you don't like this person, what they stand for, destroy the statue of them. But it all, you know, goes to just like the idea sort of more meta, right? The, The history of something, everything something stood for that's not a person. So what I think of is when ISIS blew up a bunch mm-hmm. of ancient temples in the Middle East, right, in Iraq. Um, and that was one of the, the many reasons I wanted to write my thesis on this topic, because I you know have memories of sitting there in like high school being like, oh, my gosh, these people blew up these ancient temples and things. And I would love to go see and I could learn about these ancient cultures. And now I can't, thanks to you, because they hated everything it stood for. So, yeah, but it's more complicated um, yeah. than that. I'd like to point out that when the Islamic State did blow these things up. They removed certain elements of these temples, put them on the mm-hmm. art market, simultaneous to blowing the, them up, creating a monopolized scarcity that they were in control of and a revenue source. So it's... Um, I mean, yes, it's more. It's complicated. It's complicated. But even, you know, that just made me think of, like, any place that has had culture there for millennia, you're bound to have... Now, if you go to any church in Italy, I was just in Italy over the summer... And every church in Italy has a Roman temple beneath it, right? Like these spaces. Would we consider that iconoclasm? No, because it maybe wasn't destroyed with this idea of, but in a lot of cases, when they transition from pagan temple to Christian church, there probably was a kind of classic sense to it. You have to claim the space and claiming the space. I think it is iconoclastic. Yeah, because you have to remove the building that's there on the surface and then build something on top of it and you see this all over rome you see it in mexico city you see it yeah you see it everywhere you have to claim that space because of the perceived holiness and charged space and then put new icons in its place new buildings in its place even though we can't see the moment of it or the moment of it isn't preserved and it's underground now in a mithras Mm -hmm. temple or a minerva temple it's still you you have the remnants of the iconoclastic moment, but you don't have every feature of mm-hmm. it. Iconoclasm is destruction, and it's hard to find destruction in the historical and archaeological record. It can be done, but destroying is destroying for a reason. Yep. And there's so many different ones, too. And that's the thing, because in in I had to take a very narrow focus, right? So I only focused on Islamic religio-political iconoclasm, right? So that's not even talking about all the other different kinds that you can employ. And, you know, from what I found, Islamic iconoclasm is radically different from, from all the other in such surprising ways. And actually, there's really hinges on the old second commandment that you find in Book of Exodus, I believe. It's the thou shalt not make uh, the graven likeness or whatever. So, I mean, in that a, a very specific context, but essentially they took that and then morphed it into their their purposes i mean so it's why when you look at like islamic art you never see any kind of people represented because that in and of itself is idolatrous so you have to deal with like beautiful flowers and patterns and things and other religions it's a more nuanced thing because you're dealing with images like oh so what image is considered okay and what image is not and why and that's like a whole different argument than just none of it Right. So that's what makes it so interesting as well. And I do believe I mentioned in the thesis somewhere, Kanaten, and because I was using the, the sort of cult of Ataturk, right? Be like, this is one of the things that really affects what I'm looking at. I saw so many parallels with Akhenaten, like statues and stuff, the fact that they wanted to destroy them and stuff. It was really yeah, cool. It was so, really cool. There's so much. Okay. So now so let's much there. dive into ancient Egypt. Kara, 
is there iconoclasm in ancient Egypt? Yes. I just want to first say that I want to be careful about treating everything monolithically, like that Islam does this or Christianity does that. Iconoclasm is useful for looking at how religions develop over time, because there are Islamic images of people in different manuscripts. They do exist. And then those things were removed. So it, things change, yeah, right? But iconoclasm allows you to conservative phases stuff. or something like this. You go yeah. in any religion, right? You go through a conservative phase or like when Ataturk was ruling, obviously still of a Muslim faith, but he wanted to, his overriding goal was to associate himself with the West. And so he was more focused on you know, making it a museum and not engaging in more conservative practices as much, right? Yeah. So in answer to your question, yeah. Jordan, the answer is a hard yes. <laughs> and it's interesting to think of iconoclasm as a decision of the moment. And in that decision of the moment, it, that decision can change 20 years later or 50 years later. And then people revisit that decision, but the destruction has already been done. So how do you repair or redestroy or whatever it is? But iconoclasm being something that, that takes certain images out of a view of a public in a charged space of some kind, absolutely did exist throughout ancient Egypt. It could be religious, it could be political. I think the most obvious example, which we'll talk about, Jordan, is the Amarna period and its aftermath. But there are other time periods that show a more political iconoclasm. And then, of course, there's the famous temples of Edfu and Dendera taken over, or Medina Habu, taken over by Christian faiths and then later Islam and you see a removal of faces, a killing of images, if you like. Is it iconoclasm? Is it a murder? <laughs> How are we to All see the it? Peanuts um, get but... Yeah. But I think my favorite part is when you go in Dendera and they only did the bottom layer because it was like, it's too high. We're like, we're not going to get a ladder and go all the way up there. Like those gods can keep their faces. We'll just get the one. Or it was covered. Yeah. Oh, they had a building up there. There was some sort of structure there blocking the way. And iconoclasm helps you also. Like if you're looking at Hatshepsut iconoclasm and where her image and name was destroyed, you can see, oh, there was a structure up against this part of this mm -hmm. Karnak temple wall, but not over there. Or these blocks of the Chapelle Rouge, her shrine that was ostensibly in the, the center of Karnak. They were in a big pile when they went after her name with chisels. And it's complicated mm -hmm. stuff. So, yeah, but to think of it, I, I, I really would like to think of iconoclasm as more verby than nouny, <laughs> which is hard to do because iconoclasm is a noun and we think of it as this entity, this abstract thing. But the action of iconoclasm <laughs> is really where I think the discussion should go. You know, it's each of those decisions yeah. in a lineage through time and space. Well, should we start with some Egyptian examples then? I think. Hatshepsut is a good place to start. So this woman found an extraordinary political power and ideological power as God's wife of Amun, then as regent for her young nephew, the Third, and then as nothing less than king, um, though she was a woman. And she ruled altogether 22 years as leader of state alongside her nephew, who was growing ever older. And then when she died, how she died, we don't know. But when she died, she was buried in state. Her temple structures were finished by Tutmos III in the next administration. 
And then some 20 to 25 years after her death, he ordered his artisans to go about and destroy rather than create. And anywhere that her name and images as king could be found, they were removed. If they were visible, if they were visible. So you can see these scars in uh, Karnak Temple. You can see them at Dir al-Bahri. You can see them in other parts of Egypt too. Just the Theban region is so much better preserved than other parts of Egypt. And her statuary, though most of it was of hard stone, very scarce. And even though Thomas III's portrait his face and looks exactly like Hatshepsut's later portrait. And even though Hatshepsut's later statues represented her as a full-on man with biceps and strong chin and all that jazz, he did not reuse them. He didn't take out her name and put his own name in there. Instead, he went through the very laborious task of destroying them and smashing them into tiny little bits, which has to have been, has to have been some sort of display. How many people got to see it? who was there for that, we will never know. But all of her statues from the West Bank, at least, were smashed up into very small bits and then dumped into what archaeologists ignominiously call the Hatshepsut Hole. Let's get my future band yeah. name. And, and then they're pulled out by Winlock and glued back together. And many of them now find their place in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There's another statue of the female King Hatshepsut in Amsterdam. So they're, they're all over the place, but these, the scars of her removal are all over Egypt and Egyptologists are obsessed with when this happened, why this happened, how this happened. And the debates are fast and furious and continue to this day. So it's, it's a really interesting uh, time period to look at iconoclasm. And I think one of the key things you mentioned is display here. And I think this is again, probably one of these cross cultural across time that I think is a major piece. And Lexi, you can speak to the your work as well here. And like me thinking about the Confederate statue example I mentioned, right? That part of it is who gets to see the removal. I know a lot of these Confederate statues, they try to take down like during the middle of the night so they don't have any riots or protesters, right? They just want to go in, take it away. People wake up and it's gone. And oh, you can't protest. Well, the authorities do. Party. The authorities yes. do. But the spray painters exactly. do not. <laughs> and so this idea of do you want it to be displayed or do you want to just come in and remove it quickly? I'm thinking too from Egypt when people don't get included in king's lists, right? In temples like Seti's temple. How, like whose decision, conscious decision was that to leave out certain individuals and who's getting to even see these spaces where there is a king's list to show? And so for the Hatshepsut example, I think yeah, having some type of ceremony, I don't know what you want to term it, of where these things are being destroyed. Because why do it so much later, 20 years later, if not to make a scene? You're not trying to do it secretly and just bury them and, oh, all the statues are now gone. I think the display here is interesting. And with the Hagia Sophia example, you know, converting it into a mosque, converting it back into a museum, and then converting it back into a mosque. Uh, I mean, one thing we didn't mention about Hagia Sophia is that this building is a miracle of architecture. Mm -hmm. It's these domes that are all overlapping and it's it, people walk in and they're just like, how can this exist? How is it standing? How is the ceiling not collapsed? It's a space of an extraordinary engineering skill. And as such, no wonder everyone wants to claim it. It's and where is 
Hatshepsut being erased, but from Dear Bafri, she built in the ground zero of the beautiful Feast of the Valley where Hathor is most sacred. And so you have to claim that space. And Karnak Temple, same thing, which is why, and this is a wonderful part of iconoclasm, it can never be complete. It will never be raised to the ground and beaten into the dirt because what is being done is a future claim. The action is claiming it for someone else. You can't destroy it completely. You want to save it. It's like you invade a village. You don't kill everyone because you want them to be future labor for you, future wives, future whatever. That's the way your military brain is going to think. In the same way, if you go in and you take a structure, even the Islamic State is not going to destroy it completely. They're going to maintain and keep some of it such that they can claim it. Utter destruction is a very rare thing, and it's harder for us to talk about. Just a final example, like Hatshepsut's erasure at Dir al-Bahri at her Temple of Millions of Years is so lightly done so that they could replaster it and rework it for Tutmos III and his son Amenhotep II, that you can still see her. She's still there. So iconoclasm can never be so thorough that we can't talk about it because what you're taking is so very important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, circumstances definitely will affect. I mean, well, actually, and it's interesting because when Sultan Mehmet marched into the temple, essentially, he was just like, oh, this is the most beautiful thing. He was awed by its um, its majesty, sort of the ancient heritage that came from. So he actually did. He, I think he would have probably preferred to keep it a bit more intact. But, you know, it's hard to sift through what's historical record and what's been mythologized. But, you know, they say sort of, that uh, his army, when they came in, they started pillaging uh, Hagia Sophia immediately, right? And then he, he came in as the big savior and said, no, stop, save the building, it's gorgeous. But yeah, no, like any good ruler at the time, yeah, he was like, I need to make this mine, I need to connect it to this legacy for a future sultan, this is this will be the symbol of our power, it will be the greatest mosque that ever has been. Um, but yeah, so obviously to counteract that, everything is a big period of transformation, and so when you see like that very first conversion, it's really it was really sad to to read up on. But, you know, like all the crosses and all the images that were currently in, they were white. So so basically they were covered over with like whitewash and plaster, all the crosses on the domes and like the bells and the bell tower. They were completely taken away and replaced with minarets. Um, Obviously, more minarets were added later. Um, but the biggest change, I would say, was like the sultan basically put up banners of victory and then put all the Arabic inscriptions that you see today on the walls. And if you can read it, it basically is like the story of the triumph over of Islam over Christianity, right? So you can stamp it and say, this is our identity, go and take. And so that was its first major transformation, which is really interesting. I, and I'm not saying so, that when a, a conquering army goes into a place, they don't sack a city, they don't burn it, they do. And that's why we Egyptologists talk about the sacking of Thebes in 663 and how horrible these, and you can still see the scars where the flagpoles burned against the, the pylon on the second pylon of Karnak. But iconoclasm is a preservation. If you're sacking and burning something, you don't need anything to be left. It's gone. But iconoclasm must be partial. It's only a destruction of the images. It's only a destruction of a certain part. And the whole is meant to be preserved. And Jordan, it brings me back to your discussion of what does that mean for a church like Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, the church of St. Mary above Minerva? Does that mean that her, it's the divine feminine that's maintained in a place? They just thought, like, oh, the Romans had it wrong. It wasn't Minerva. It's actually 
marry or you know, like you right. can just transition the power that's explicit in that place. But to both yeah. of your points, yeah. so much about it is keeping the memory alive, right? There that the people extant when these changes are occurring need to remember what the old was enough. Like an, enough of the old needs to be kept so that people know it was there and that whoever powers that be had the power to co-opt it and like ownership over it and to change it into what it became. But you can't erase it completely, right? Because then they wouldn't know that the other thing existed and that you had the power over it. That's why we have to make iconoclasm into a verb, an action, because we're looking at iconoclasm from thousands of years in the future. And it's our perspective of forgotten cultural memory. Whereas for the people on the ground, when a new regime is coming into their space and taking something and changing something, the cultural memory, it, there's no, it's, it's cultural existence that's as fresh and raw and alive as anything you can possibly imagine. So it is somebody coming in and ripping out somebody's ideological beliefs and expressions in front of their eyes. That's what iconoclasm is doing. We look at it as historians and we're like, oh, that's been, it's to make people forget. I don't, it, it has that action over a long term. And I'm not saying that an actor of iconoclasm wouldn't think in that long-term way. It's very possible. But in the moment, the iconoclastic moment, it's meant to wound. It's meant to hurt. It's meant to be a deep cultural psychic pain that you are inflicting on a people in front of their eyes and saying, look, bitches, this is mine. And this pain that you feel, I can do this anytime. Watch me. And so you might be like, well, wait a minute. What, wait a minute, Kara. What about like at Edfu Temple when they're taking out the eyes and the faces and the hands and, and turning it into a Christian church? There are still people in Egypt who use these spaces, whether they're Christian or, or Muslim, as spaces of great ideological power. And so for a church to come in front of a populace that still understands this place is charged with a particular heroic power, divine feminine power, whatever it is, and to go in and to take out the eyes, take out the hands, there would have been village people just, oh, and they can't say anything, or they do say something and they're punished for it or whatever, but it's meant to be a psychic harm. And I want to think about it in that psyops kind of way. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that is in good comparison to what we see happening with Akhenaten and his Atenism. I think it's functioning very differently, arguably, I would say. And then what's happening post-Amarna is more similar to Hatshepsut's case. So if you're not too bent up about it, I say we move on to Akhenaten, because I think this is what probably most people think of when they think of iconoclasm in the ancient world. They think Akhenaten and his religious changes. Lexi, Absolutely. as you you made um, the point earlier about talking about it. And so how did you discuss it with your thesis? And if you feel comfortable giving our listeners a lowdown on what Akhenaten did? Sure, for sure. So I had to pick a very narrow focus within this big topic. So I actually focused on the use of religio-political iconoclasm in, con in the context of cultural heritage policy in modern Turkey, um, because essentially I compared the heritage policies of the Ashtoric period 
and the Erdogan period because their goals and uses of the bill were very different from each other. So essentially, the short version is that when Ataturk was opening Turkey up toward the West and converting the active mosque to a museum, essentially what he was doing was saying, I'm opening us up to this more secular legacy. What I'm going to do is show, uncover things and show it. Uh, show all the icons to the world and say, look, this is the history of the building. You can see all the different stages of transformation. And also in doing this, he decided the most important step in all this is that was really when the Ministry of like Tourism and Heritage w- was created. And he put the now new museum under its direct control. And then obviously further down the line when it was added to UNESCO's list of heritage sites, they uh, worked with UNESCO to take over management of the site. And so what Erdogan does when he comes in and then uses the building for his political message of we need to hew back to the conservative principles uh, that made us great because the West is decadent and look at what is happening to us. He essentially says, now I'm going to stop this secular legacy and I'm going to reassert religion as the center of good Turkish life. To be a good Turkish you know, citizen and person, you have to walk hand in hand. And he takes this position. And so one of the most important things that happens there is that in doing these changes and then in reconverting the museum back into an active mosque, that would mean that the control and the management of the building would go from the Ministry of Tourism and Culture back to what is called the DNET, which is essentially the Ministry for Religious Affairs, which means that is a huge change. UNESCO can no longer have direct hand in the management of it, which means they also cannot say you cannot put up this curtain, like curtain and pulley system to cover the icons because we've moved past. But Lexi, that's perfect because you're able to talk about iconoclasm in real time with a real Mm -hmm. structure and we can watch it and it's documented. We cannot do this for Akhenaten and what he did for temples in Egypt. And though many say, you can't impose a modern event or a series of events onto the ancient world. And I would say, but how else are we supposed to understand what's happening in the ancient world, but similar structural claims and changes that are happening in the modern world? Can You can take those structural changes and then apply them to Karnak Temple, to Luxor Temple, to things that Akhenaten did. I think that would be a great jumping off point. And I think to your point about the ownership or management of Hagia Sophia changing from the cultural heritage of antiquities management to the religious sector is, I think, arguably, when you were talking about it, the first thing that popped into my head about Akhenaten was one of the reasons that people always say Akhenaten did this religious transformation was to change control out of the hands of the priesthood to more under the kingship, right? And so in a similar vein, who has control over these spaces? And one of one of the explanations people put out for Akhenaten's religious transformations is that the priesthood was getting too powerful and that he was trying to take some power out of the priesthood, move the capital out to Amarna. And he's now the sole intermediary between the god and him and the people. And therefore, now the high priests of Amun don't have so much of a role. And so you could see Erdogan maybe doing something similar now. Hagia Sophia is no longer under UNESCO's control or cultural heritage management kind of sector, but now it's being placed under the religious sector where maybe he feels he has more akin or control or power within you know, connections within this in this sector. And so these buildings are, or Karnak or changing of capitals with Akhenaten, 
they're just stand-ins, icons, as we were talking about earlier, for these policy changes. But how cool that you can make the comparison to Akhenaten and also see that Akhenaten doesn't start his iconoclasm by starting a new capital. He starts his iconoclasm at Heliopolis, at Memphis, at Thebes. And in Thebes, you can arguably see it most clearly, most distinctly. What does he do? He goes to eastern Karnak, to the east of the main temple, sets up new temple spaces, and arguably neglects and opens up and la- and stops protecting the old part of Karnak Temple, where the Holy of Holies is, where Hatshepsut was building before him. And I like this comparison with Hagia Sophia because the idea of a slow neglect is also a kind of iconoclasm where you're like, fine, let all the people in. I don't care. Let them all in. And you can imagine that happening with Akhenaten's Karnak, where he's like, okay, all of you priests, I need you over here. And I don't care about all of that. And they're like, but my Lord, what do we do with it? No, I need you over here. That part, we're not going to pay attention to anymore. And then you can imagine what could that neglect have created? Maybe the city of Thebes just slowly encroaches and starts building into the temple. People start going in and treating images and areas without respect. They're not reducing the flow of visitors. It's free for all for people. Whereas he redirects attention and funding to another part of the site. And the people who are in control at Karnak must have just felt this great psychic wound going through them as they see their temple being disrespected and neglected, potentially vandalized. And we don't know what other things were purposefully done to the western part of Karnak Temple to subsume it to the eastern part. But there must have been something. Mm -hmm. I mean, just taking a step back, even from the tangible, right, like things that we can see and touch and visit, a large part of my argument toward the end of my work, I built my argument off of a great scholar named James Noyes, who basically his whole point was that like the destruction of religious and cultural icons has always gone hand in hand with uh, the political construction of the modern state. And I sat with that and I was like, okay, well, what does he mean? Where can I take this? And then I have made this argument. It's a brilliant piece of psychological warfare, right, that you can do in any period, because the important part, right, while I was looking at a monument, that's not all of it. So for iconoclasts, like a big thing about their actions is that it's not solely a protest against whatever artifact or item or building that you are looking, but it's more against the inherent value that your perceived enemy, quote unquote, places on the thing right which really opens it up which means it could be anything yeah whatever value people place on something it could be the stupidest smallest thing but if no people are like oh my god this is the most important thing that's really what it's about so i love it and i hate it as a brilliant piece Mm -hmm. of psychological warfare Mm -hmm. so you could totally study this without looking at destruction like physical destruction of anything whether that's statue big building whatever yeah and i think we can see this i mean everyone always oh how much actual influence did Akhenaten have? How much did he actually change religiously, right? And you see the personal shrines at Amarna Villas that you, they still have little best figurines and things like this. And but to your point, why would you care about a small personal shrine with a best figurine? That's not what he was going for, right? Because he was thinking about, you know, where's the power? Where's the display and things like this? He doesn't care what, you know, people are doing in a very personal nature with their little personal shrines want to worship best, whatever, but he's going through the major temples in Egypt, carving out Amun's name, 
And Akhenaten is an interesting case, too, because he himself, in the Egyptian mindset, is like an icon. Mm -hmm. He is a statue. And by removing himself in year five, removing himself from Thebes, Heliopolis, Memphis, these ancient cities, and saying, I'm not going to be your chief priest. I'm not going to be your your sacred icon in these spaces. I remove myself. And I'm going to go out to this middle of nowhere, middle Egypt place. And you... I will not bring my sacred presence into these old spaces because I do not value them as sacred, which opens them up ostensibly for massive neglect and and vandalism. And he must have wiped them clean of any treasures that he could then commodify. I mean, come on, what, you think he's going to leave all of the crypts full of golden and silver treasures that were brought out on festival days that were meant to contain the divinities? Holy shit, no. He's going to take all of that stuff and he's going to create another psychological wound on the elite populations that run these spaces and then let the, in a pure populist way, then let the hordes who probably have enough resentment against the elite and then claim these spaces as their own. And then the neglect becomes destruction. Well, and to your point, we see that playing out exactly with the restoration stilas and stuff we've seen with uh, King Tut and Horemheb and all these things. Well, I was going to say, and then there is technically, and I can't believe I, I've waited this long to get to it, but there was actually, there's even another dimension that I did, I touched on it, I like tapped it because I didn't have enough time to really discuss it. But um, something of interest is also you can use iconoclasm as a form of cultural cleansing without having to kill a bunch of people, right? So it's like genocide, but without actually killing people. It's a cultural genocide, you know, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So because it's like the removal of images and sacred sites and personages in sort of one process, right? It cleanses whatever to try to build whatever homogenous. This can be used both in the modern context, but also I can see it being used in the ancient context. You know, if you come, there's a lot. There's, there are a few examples and I'm blanking on the one I wanted. But in the ancient world, right, when you conquer a place and then you destroy all of the cultural symbols around there, but leave the people there, right, you still sort of culturally cleansed um I have a really horrible analogy that may trigger some people, but it's a typical thing that happens in war when soldiers conquer a place. They then go about killing the able-bodied men and and forcibly raping, I mean forcibly raping the women within a place. And what that does is then leave a community to have the patriarchal inheritance of their victors in their bodies. It is an it is a physical claim, a patriarchal physical claim of a space through force. And how do you rape a monument, rape a temple, rape a church? Well, you can. That's exactly what iconoclasm is. You can be a conqueror in Mexico City. You can see the Templo Mayor. You can remove the parts of it that are value, melt them down, make people watch. And then you restructure that space such that it serves your purposes. And it is a cultural rape in front of people's eyes that must be viewed and must be witnessed. And it does make me very angry because I think when most people think of just architecture, you you don't get this sort of idea. But I'm like, if you think about it, yeah. So essentially, you are culturally raping a place using architecture as your medium. And that's a really hard thought to get your brain around because you're like, Architecture is supposed to be wonderful and creative, and you're supposed to build new amazing things and bring us forward. And also, I can imagine, like, when the general is, okay, go rape the women, and there are soldiers who are like, I don't want to rape the women, but there's this communal demand that they be a part of it. 
and must also imagine that the agents of iconoclasm were not necessarily willing and happy to do this. We're talking about artisans who create with their chisels rather than destroy. And for an artisan, artists, some call them, I like the craft term um, better. It's more um, generalizing and useful and doesn't denigrate craft. But when an artisan has to, is ordered to take their device of creation to destroy something beautiful that they think is worthy of copying or remembering, that's also a psychic wound on a certain group of, of crafts people. And that has to also be a part of the process. So then it's like you have one person in control or a few people in control saying, I order you to do this. Some people would be like, yes, I will wantonly destroy. That's great. But you have the story of Mehmet going into Hagia Sophia and saying, this is fucking gorgeous. You need to keep, this is awesome. And I cannot destroy such beauty. That's the point of iconoclasm. It must be something so beautiful, so valuable, so rare, so precious, so, so much power culturally ascribed to like an image of the god Amit that, that destroying it. Think of what the artisan who's ordered to remove all the images of the god Amit and the names and what he feels like inside. What's going to happen to me? What are the gods going to do to me? Am I going to get struck down? There's no lightning in Egypt. Not, you know, what, what do we, what's going to happen? That's the point. The cruelty is the point and the, it's a raping of the mind in a sense. Yeah. yeah, but, I mean, yeah. Both too dangerous well, I mean, and, and also in- powerful enough that you need to do something with it, right? That Mehmet came in and was like, this place is so beautiful. It's useful for me, but I need to mm-hmm. alter it and take the power of it in some way and give it to myself and how that's where I feel like the iconoclasm comes in. I mean, there's the there's that dimension. And then specifically in the context of what I was looking, I was asking all these questions. about. OK, so why would you need to do certain things? Like, why would you need to create the DNA? Why do you need a, that, that will handle Hagia Sophia? Because it, you can't just create one thing and say it only serves the one building. That makes no sense. So there was like a bigger question there. And it was interesting because it goes to when we talk about the long conflict between Turks and the Greeks and their fighting. And I mean, to this day, you go to Greece and they will not call Istanbul Istanbul. It is still Constantinople and you see it everywhere. And don't you dare you know, say Turkish coffee in a Greek restaurant. Mm-hmm. Right. It's Greek coffee. And then when you go to Turkey, it's Turkish coffee. I mean, <laughs> so there's still all this uh, simmering tension. But so looking into the history of it, though, it was quite interesting. So in creating the Dianet to, you know, re sort of enforce its policies, though, what they were also doing in the context of heritage policy is for all the old churches that were smaller, less of less renown. Essentially, what the Turkish state wanted to do is own them. But you can't just go over and say, this is mine. You're going to piss off the actual people who are still there. So they really did this clever sort of thing where the new policy from the religious bureau said, to claim ownership over your property, you essentially have to prove and present a document that proved prior ownership. Now, since there was no one to do that for Hagia Sophia, that made it really easy for them to be like, oh, well, obviously it's ours. You know, you can't prove it was yours. Where's the paper? But this also made it harder for the the citizens who are still there. I mean, there was a huge like movement out. Right. So big diaspora. A lot of people just left. They were like, no, I'm not here. I'm out. But for the people who stayed, they were like, this is where my ancestors were. I was born in this land. I don't want to relocate across the Aegean. That's far. So it's really interesting that they basically were forcing people to try to find some sort of scrap of paper that was like, yes, I own this. But because most couldn't, they then were able to take control of all the former churches around Turkey. 
And I was like, mm. that's brilliant, but brutal. I love this pushback that you always get, even when the space is claimed. So Mehmet comes in, he makes it a mosque, it's his. But the pushback is there and the cultural memory is real for hundreds of years, such that Ataturk, when he makes it, he has to culturally feels the pressure that this was too much of a claim, that it was too violent, too harsh. And he puts it back into the sphere of a no man's land. It's a museum, it's a mosque, and it's a church, and both things are maintained simultaneously. And you can then look at the ancient Egyptian situation with Akhenaten and see that he had to leave these old spaces. He couldn't manifest what he wanted in Memphis, Heliopolis, and Thebes, that the pushback was so great, it was too much, that he had to say, fine, I'm going to take all your awesome shit, all your golden statues, all of the wealth, I'm going to go to my new place, and I'm going to, I'm going to do it there, and I don't need you, and I'm just going to leave this behind. But it shows that the attachment to space, it can win, in a sense. And even with the violence perpetrated before people's eyes, there, there are agents that, that will continue in their way to push back such that somebody like Akhenaten had to leave. Somebody like Ataturk is like, okay, fine, you can have it back, but not. It's interesting. Well, and it's interesting because Mehmed wasn't the only one. There was actually, in the 19th century, I don't know if you knew this, but there was actually a restoration attempt by Sultan Abdul Masid I. So I believe that was 1820s, I believe, something like that. But he was like, oh, my gosh, I'm enraptured. He, he valued like Western ideas. And so he actually got a pair of Swiss Italian brothers called the Fasati brothers. And they tried to restore things. Now, they messed it up because they did not properly restore stuff. So that actually they ended up destroying accidentally beautiful mosaics. So there's also there's always the accidental right destruction. But it's interesting how many, because there's so many different back and forth because you're like, OK, so Mehmed liked Abdul Masid liked it. Other people liked it, but they wanted to do different things. But it's interesting because by the time Atatürk comes around, he's trying to not only secularize, but also build it around this personal cult of ethnic Turkish nationalism, which comes into play, which is also why not only do you have the movement and the secularization of the building, but that went hand in hand, the new ethnic identity that you needed to become a Turk and be a good Turk. Think of Mexico City. So you've got this Templo Mayor that now arguably has more visitors on a daily basis on average than the cathedral does. No one in Mexico City is, well, very few people in Mexico City are openly worshiping at Aztec temples as within that old religion. But in terms of ethnic pride, a certain kind of nationalism, a certain kind of anti-colonialism, you have these spaces now much more important than than they were before. So even if you rip out the old religion by the roots, make it demonic with your new imposition of a colonial religion, the space still has great power for communal pushback against those who are trying to take the whole game. And so so thinking about both your points, Lexi, is about, you know, transitioning back and forth, you know, the next lead having to stake a claim or have some say in this, in these spaces. I think looking at the post-Amarna period with what happens after Akhenaten, right? He leaves these millennia old spaces, Heliopolis, Karnak, all these places. He goes to Amarna. And then once he dies, his traditions, his practices are no longer upheld, right? There's a conservative pushback. Um, and we see a series of restoration stealers that it's interesting the fact that they felt they need, needed to have, you know, Tut and Horm have, that they needed to have a restoration stealer proclaiming like all these places were left in ruin. I restored them back to their former glory. 
Marna is abandoned, right? So again, we have this abandonment of a place, a move back to the traditional capital at Memphis, reinstitution of Karnak and all this kind of stuff. And so in a way, post-Amarna is another iconoclasm, but against more an individual in this case, um, rather than... It shows that iconoclasm is of great short-term power, but not long-term, and that it can actually work against the iconoclastic actor in a brutal way. No one cared about trying to keep Akhenaten stuff safe. There was, there is, an, there is still no, I mean, maybe now <laughs> there's, you know, we have Barry Kemp working at the site for a decade and excavations happening there over the last hundred years. And we are trying to make it come alive. And there are some, I take it back. There are Egyptologists who believe that Akhenaten's religion was of a beautiful, pure, even, dare I say, monotheistic variety than, than others, and that it needs to be resuscitated and his statues are lovingly glued back together. So I guess anyone can be resuscitated, right? But it's this interesting push and pull. Being the restorer is way safer politically than smashing shit up is going to get you some sort of pushback in some way at some point. And you no, know, it's interesting. No one ever talks about Tumas the Third, for example, getting pushback for smashing up Hatshepsut. But I'd like to look at Tumas the Third and Amenhotep the Second and think of onto Tumas the Fourth, who ostensibly took power in an untoward way. It would be interesting to look at long-term community pushback against this kind of cultural rape and display psychological of psychological harm yeah but but i'm just thinking short term versus long term Mm -hmm. for akhenaten yeah i mean i feel like it's harder especially in the ancient world where there's big gap who's writing the history that goes down so there's so many empty spaces and so it has been nice to work in the more you know modern realm just you know yeah i worked with a building that i can you know i had a whole section in my thesis devoted just to the international reaction and what people were saying but Ataturk is the restorer yes. he's the afmoza or the rest- restoration after the hyksos he's the eye and, and horam have trying to set his political foot forward in making connections between cultural entities that were at loggerheads so you're he's trying to come in and say, no, we can all have it. And I know going through Turkey today, if someone's got an Ataturk portrait in their place of business, then they have a certain political persuasion versus having a portrait of Erdogan in their business. And you're talking about the iconoclast versus the restorer and making a choice in modern day Turkey and displaying it to everyone for everyone to see. I have to imagine that such things were going on in year three of Akhenaten's thieves. You know, what are you going to display in your household with your ancestor shrine in your home and show people where you stand politically and where you're able to hold your ground and where you're able to be more opportunistic? But at the same time, you can see, even though you have, and that's the thing, that's what they want you to see. They want you to see the propaganda of you have the great restorer and you have the great sort of destruction destructor right but at the same time upon like really digging in their cultural heritage policies were almost identical and they build off each other which means no his propaganda machine was just excellent because Ataturk was the one who fundamentally invented the discriminatory cultural heritage property system 
But he had his propaganda machine going and he had this sort of attitude toward the West, right? So we see him as the good Turk, the example of the good ruler. This is why Egyptologists still can't openly say that Akhenaten went into temples, took Mm -hmm. the statues, the gold statues and all of the treasures, melted that shit down and made it into stuff for his temples. We still have a problem with saying this. I don't understand why, because if he's going in and removing images of Amen Re and the word gods and other things, he's doing other things as well. We just don't have the evidence for it. But that destruction happened on many different levels. But there's enough apologism and enough goodwill for what Akhenaten created within modern Egyptological communities that that we have a hard time actually saying how bad or entertaining how bad things might have gotten and, and we'll get pushback for it. How dare you say you don't have any evidence for it? How do you know? Well, I've got this other circumstantial evidence, but you don't really know. And it's um, it's a really interesting political space to be in talking about something that happened over 3000 years. It's kind of insane. Kira, I have a slightly different question to ask you about your own work. So your yeah. work with the royal cash, right? You recently at ICE, you got some flack about arguing that it was the priesthood and the state who were going into these tombs, looting them, recommodifying them, and then burying the king, unwrapping them, taking all their goodies and rewrapping them, restoring them and putting them into these rural caches. Do you feel, obviously not iconoclasm in a sense because there is destruction going on right they're going into these tombs well, these kings are gods in their own way right deified osiris in a sense right and they're being claimed restored and repurposed in this other way maybe and the, you also talk about the display of these actions too and how obviously they're couching it in other terms and not as a destruction but as a restoration as they're saving these people and putting them in a new safe place because there's tomb robberies happening. God damn it, Jordan. Now I have to write an article. Ugh. What have you done to me? Because this is brilliant. This is brilliant. Because when you think about it, iconoclasm is always partly preservative. Otherwise, you wouldn't go in and try to claim that space. You need the memory. You need the physicality, the materialism. You need materiality. You need all of these things. And so when you're talking about the it's like bodily modification or something yeah we're talking about mummies we're talking about royal mummies and you're talking about a group of high priests and military men at the same time people like pianki harry Hor, and then penegem the first into the 21st dynasty who are making decisions about what to keep for themselves what to recommodify and what to restore all at the same time simultaneously and the decisions change through time such that harry Hor's crew i argue when they're dealing with the mummy of Tutmos the third for example they leave a lot of valuable elements there on his coffin and arguably even within his mummy such that later generations are like oh my god they left these things behind we're taking that shit we're gonna take that gold away and then we'll rewrap him again, right? Or whatever. There are different decisions happening such that you, they are preserved in the archaeological record, but you people who are trying to preserve and remove simultaneously. And the other element here that's really cool from an icon- iconoclastic bent is that these high priests slash military men of the t- late 20th and early 21st dynasty are deciding which kings, which dead bodies to associate themselves with. They don't want to be associated with Amenhotep III, way too close to Akhenaten's shenanigans. He started Akhenaten's shenanigans within cultural memory. 
So we don't want that. But Tut was the third. Before him, Amenhotep the first. You need those guys to connect your new and very vulnerable regime too. So there's more preserv- preservative actions with the coffins and mummies of Amenhotep the first and Tut the third that are visible. Second Henry Tao as well that are visible now to the archaeological investigator, me. Certainly compared to Amenhotep the third, Tutmos the fourth, kings like that. And we don't even have I and Horemheb, right? They're not preserved in any way, shape, or form in the tomb of Amenhotep the second. They were probably in a different cache tomb of Horemheb himself. And it, so to see things as simultaneously destructive, recommodicative, is that a <laughs> word? And preservative, I think is really cool. And it's all about current regime building. And you see a regime thinking, okay, here's my short term. I need to do this now. But I do understand that winning hearts and minds is a long-term game. So you do need to show some sort of preservation. The, and this is my last point, then I'll throw it back to you. The coffin of Tutmos Third is it is clear that it was re-gilded probably twice. And so they're taking off nice thick sheet gold that was put there in the early 18th dynasty when the coffin was made. And then, but they're like, but we got to preserve it. We got to show that we're caring for it. They re-gild it ostensibly with a very thin, cheaper form of gold. And then later on, agents decide, oh, we're going to remove this. But then there's another decision. Oh, we really need to show that we're preserving it. Let's re-gild it again. There are two openings and two re-commodifications of that very, very important coffin. I, I love this. This all works out as claims of space, claims of gods, claims in this case of mummified, divinized individuals that are like your Ark of the Covenant that you hold before your armies that you cannot lose. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, most of this discussion, we've been thinking about spaces, right? Karnak, mm-hmm. Hagia Sophia, Amarna, even statues you know, as like architectural elements. But I think it's very interesting to think about iconoclast oh, working on coffins as like art. I guess, in our modern sense of art, obviously not in the Egyptian sense, um, but also on bodies. It's very interesting. And I think we could, where people get buried in churches, if you think like, I don't know, medieval Renaissance Europe and stuff, people getting moved, right? You want to, you build a new monument and you're going to pull an ancient ancestor king and bury them there and make this claim of connection or something like this is, I think, similar in a sense, changing a space like religiously from Christianity to Islam or something this or to a museum, arguably, like the function of a space by itself, moving these bodies around, which bodies do you choose to associate yourself with the display of these like new funeral for them possibly happening as well. Like the coffin of Tutmos the first is super interesting here. Think of it like a monument. Mm -hmm. Think of it like Ayosophia. Tutmos the first coffin is maintained. It is carefully plastered over, but the name is not removed. It is not destroyed. It's maintained. And then Panejan the first takes it and puts his name over that name. And I guarantee you there must have been some sort of display to people in the know. So no, no, we're not destroying this. We're not ruining this. I'm saving it. I'm preserving it. I'm connecting my kingship to his kingship and cartouching my name in the way his name was surrounded by that sacred Shen ring. And you can have both simultaneously. Does Tutmos the first get his coffin anymore? No, you put him into a different coffin that you carefully create so that such that you can show everyone, oh, I am preserving a body container for this most esteemed divine ancestor. But you then show your smaller audience 
the preservation and simultaneous destruction of another of his coffins that you maintain for you. So this can happen on many different levels. No, it's, it would be great. I did not do this in the book, um, but applying an iconoclastic perspective, I think would be another, it would be a really fun follow-up article. And even within a family for coffin reuse, right? If you're reusing, like there's the coffin in the Met of Nauni that would previously belong to her mother, Tabechnet. The name is retained on that coffin. It, it doesn't really fall into iconoclasm, though. This is where reuse becomes problematic. For the coffin of Tutmas the i I'll say it does. But for families, it's less so. But if you are competing with another family and you take their coffin and you break up that coffin and you make it into a new coffin for yourself, does that count as iconoclasm? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I would argue it does. I mean, it's on a less grand scale than conquering a city and then you know, taking over its monuments and changing them. But no, it's still, it's the same concept, really. And I mean, but you know, the, the big lesson of all, all of my research, all the, the subsequent discussions that I've had that I've really taken away is that because continuation, people who believe the same thing, trying to do the same thing in different ways, pertaining to iconoclasm. But it's really interesting because in my examples that I've seen now, right, it doesn't really matter whether you believe the same or differently because you look at the personal identities and the governing styles of two people like Erdogan and Ataturk, right? And they seem completely antithetical to each other. Every core belief they have, super different, and the reasons behind what they do, super different. But the point I make in my thesis is that both of these men, the thing that they had in common was that they followed their individual beliefs to extremes. And so I argue that basically secularism on Ataturk's part being seen as the bridge builder, whatever, but followed to an extreme, it mirrors religious fanaticism. And so I'm like, you can take that and apply it to almost anything in the context of iconoclasm. And it works. It works. And that was really shocking. But it's terrifying also to think about that. And I'm sure it was the same in the ancient world as well, because it didn't have to always be religious. You just take it to whatever individual belief. But if you believe it hard enough, yeah, so you can take an Afmoza and, and before that a second Enre Tao and apply a political nationalist extremism such that everyone who was Hyksos is denigrated mm-hmm. as subhuman in a sense. And yet that's going to come back around and harm them, arguably, when a Ramesset kingship comes back in and places like Teladaba are resuscitated or never went away, but then become much more mm-hmm. important from a nationalist perspective for a certain dynasty, the 19th dynasty in particular, it would be interesting to look at at that shift in power from the 18th, the Hyksos to the 18th, and then to the 19th and a resuscitation of Eastern Delta values. Where does iconoclasm come in? Because iconoclasm implies that scarcity of cultural value and deep memory that that doesn't go away. And those psychic wounds are not forgotten. Um, people maintain mm-hmm. that that pain lovingly through time. Well, yeah, I think. Oh yeah, to, to both your points and what Kara mentioned earlier about the short term kind of goals and short sightedness, right? That these things happen very quickly with you know, an individual's reign or something like this. But that, as you were saying, the pain and the trauma of it lasts generations. So, where you still maybe have people talking about you know, certain destructions that happened thousands of years ago that are within the cultural memory. Um, of a population or something like this. And so we're still dealing with ramification of of these things. I mean, I still wonder about Amenhotep III taking down the festival court of Tutmos I and putting his third pylon right the fuck through the middle of it. 
was that iconoclasm? Was that? And people going, you're removing this most sacred of places to put this big pile on here. What is going on? You're moving all these statues. You're moving all this stuff. Is this a kind of pushback for the iconoclasm that Thomas III and Amenhotep II meted out? Am I overthinking it? I can never really know. I don't have my time machine at the ready. But but this is there there is always a pushback for the iconoclast who goes too hard. He is simply giving bullets to later generations to shoot in their gun. And one wonders what the long-term repercussions are for, for some of these past actions. I mean, to take a really, really modern example, someone asked me last year whether I thought Donald Trump was an iconoclast of sorts. I started out with Melania. I mean, did she decide to remove the Rose Garden? I think not her style. Um, he put her in front of it for a propagandistic veil. Um, no, that was all Trump all the time. You rip out that goddamn Rose Garden and you make a show of it. So I'll agree mm-hmm. with you on that one. I mean, it's just interesting because I definitely had to sit with that for a minute because I was like, wow, he talks about wanting like a Mount Rushmore type of thing. He's better than some of the historic Republican president. What's interesting? You know, do you consider like a Trump artifacts that he produced? You know, are those I think Trump is an icon or iconoclastic movement? Yes, because you can make it about one person. Who will break his image? I'm very curious. No, but it's great. There's so many fantastic examples through every time period, every culture. I, I'd, If I had enough time in the world, I would study all the different places that it has happened. So, uh. yeah, I mean, I think this was like a really very interesting one topic that I think really lends itself to looking at both modern and ancient contexts. So I think this was Thank you, Lexi, for bringing this idea up when we were chatting about what can we talk about today? I think iconoclasm, we haven't focused on it before. And I think it's a really interesting lens to look at Akhenaten and other movements within Egypt and obviously modern context. There's so many. It's surrounding us. I think you need the living comparison. Bringing in Hagia Sophia Mm -hmm. was brilliant because you have that living set of actions over hundreds of, if not thousands of years that you can then compare to similar actions in Egypt. Different religion, different social circumstances, but the patriarchal power is still visible and how it manifests itself through structures, places, objects, images is all there and very yeah. clear to see. And and one thing I want to mention before we wrap up is also I didn't have space or time to write about a comparison, but I had in mind I wanted to actually compare it with the history of the Parthenon because a lot of people don't realize that the Parthenon in Greece it was also transformed into a church and a mosque at one point when the Ottomans yeah. were in control. But then you look at the diverging histories and how one became a museum, but now, you know, they don't want that. And how the Greeks, they said, yes, it's going to be converted. It's a heritage site and it will stay that way. But that's because it suits the Greek sort of political interest for it to stay a museum. There's no benefit to transforming it to anything else. So it's I wanted to do that comparison because they have the same history. They were both churches. They were both mosques. There just wasn't enough time. Maybe I'll write something on that and pu- try to publish it. But, um, oh, there's so it's, much it's we could do. And interest. think of Luxor Temple, which has a mosque hanging off the side of it in Luxor Temple. And what does that mean? How, obviously, tourism dollars are so great, but you can't rent yeah. that, that mosque either. So it's there are lots of negotiations happening. With these topics, there's so many different things that we could talk about. But yeah, it's a re- really interesting. Yeah, so thank you all. I hope I think this was a really fascinating talk and I hope you all enjoyed um, listening to this. Um, thanks, Lexi, for popping by and 
giving us some of your weekend time. I hope you all enjoyed. And Lexi, I'll let you take us out. I do actually have my own. I have two podcasts, but I'll mention the one basically, which is Ancient Office Hours. I've had both Kara and Jordan on it. It was great fun. Um, Kara's had two episodes on Mm -hmm. it, actually. So you can go and find those. Uh, But basically, it is similar in tone to Afterlives. So I hope that if you enjoy this conversation, you will enjoy my other podcast. But yes, so this has been our wonderful Afterlives and Ancient Office Hours crossover. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you all. Bye. Thanks, Lexi. Thanks, Jordan. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support. And please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Karakuni. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.